Exodus chapter 11. Is this working? Okay. Let's go ahead and begin by praying together as we get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather again around your word. We need to hear from you. We we need your words to minister life to our hearts and to our minds. We need to believe you more than we already do. And so we pray that you would use your word to open our eyes to see more of you today and to believe more of what we know to be true about you. Pray that you would free our minds from distracting thoughts and focus our attention on the words of Scripture this afternoon. We will praise You for the way that You work in our midst today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, our God is a a God of many, what we might call perfections or attributes, characteristics. God, God cannot be limited to just one aspect. He is a multifaceted God who at the same time possesses almost contradictory attributes and characteristics. For instance, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards considered aloud for his hearers the terrifying condition of those facing the judgment of a holy God. Let me read a portion of what he said, and his, his sermon was much, much longer, but, but this tone characterized much of, much of what he said to, to that audience. He wanted them to know that the wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. When once it is let loose... It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The flood of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more and more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Now that's quite a statement. And can you imagine if that was our only portrait of God? If that was all we knew of God, was that His wrath was just being stored up and stored up against our our wickedness every day. Well, praise God, that's not all we know of our God. The picture of God includes that, but it's much, much broader than that. While it's certainly a sobering and fearful description of God's disposition toward the unrighteous. We also know from Scripture these words that God proclaimed to to Moses later in in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see, God is at the same time demonstrating both wrath towards sinners and sin 
at the same time demonstrating abundant grace and mercy to those who repent and trust Him. So our view of God must not be limited to one or the other. But our view of God must be broadened to capture all of these perfections of God. The many facets of His character that He displays through His Word and through our lives. So that we might be moved to worship Him for exactly who He is. A just God who hates sin and punishes sin, but also a loving and merciful God who forgives sinners who come in repentance. And this section of our Exodus narrative presents exactly this multifaceted portrait of God all in one section of the narrative. We come to this tenth plague, this series of plagues that he, God is, is sending upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh. We saw the first nine a couple weeks ago. Now we come to the tenth plague where in this tenth plague we see both God acting with devastation and at the same time deliverance. So first I want us to see that God promises a devastating final plague. God promises a devastating final plague upon Egypt. Let me read for us Exodus chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now from the beginning of this series of plagues, Moses was told by God that he was going to send plagues upon Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh would... As a result of those plagues, let the people go from the land of Egypt. But what God God had not told Moses was when that would occur, how many plagues he would send. And you can almost imagine that Moses and the the people of Israel, after experiencing those nine plagues that we, we saw a couple weeks ago, you can almost wonder how in the world have they not let the people go already? How in the world have they continued to hold these people captive when all of this that they have have faced and experienced. From destruction, darkness, hail, all the the locusts, bugs, all the rest. How is it that the, the Pharaoh and the people had not let them go up to this point? And of course we've already learned that the reason was because God had hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would let them go on God's terms and not on Pharaoh's terms. But here in this promise of this devastating final plague, God affirms for Moses that this tenth plague would be the final plague. This was the plague. This was the act that God would perform that would do what God had intended to accomplish. This is the one. He had been hardening Pharaoh's heart to get him to this point so that he, would, he could execute this plague. 
This would bring to a dramatic close the plagues which God would, by which God would prove his superiority over Pharaoh and over all Egypt. And this provides our first glimpse at, at this aspect of God's character because on one hand, you almost, you, you, we were tempted to, to think of God as cruel, that he would harden Pharaoh's heart to the point of bringing him to this plague, knowing what this plague is going to be. That he would kill the firstborn in every Egyptian household. How is it that, that a person, that God, could intentionally harden someone's heart to bring them to this point, that he would perform this sort of act? And I hope that your answer to that question is we've already studied to this point in the book of Exodus and, and really in, in all of Scripture that we've studied. Hopefully you understand that the answer is at its core that God is, is God. We saw that earlier in Exodus. God is, is God and He acts as He pleases. God has right over human life. God is the sovereign ruler. That's the point that He is trying to make to Pharaoh. The point that he's trying to make to the people of Israel. It's the point that he, he is communicating through his word. It also is interesting to know that it appears at this point, Pharaoh is the only one whose heart is hardened toward the, the, the Israelites. It seems that the rest of Egypt is, is kind of relenting, not understanding why Pharaoh is holding these people hostage through all they've experienced. We see that God has given the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians, even to the point that he tells, he reminds them of this command that he gave earlier in the book of Exodus to go and, and ask them for gold and silver. Essentially asking your neighbor and accumulating the riches of Egypt in that manner. God said he promised that he would plunder Egypt through this means of neighbor going to neighbor, and the Egyptians being willing to give up their gold and silver to the Israelites. The promise of this devastating plague is simply put, that God would come into Egypt. It's interesting to note that this is the first plague where God says, I will come personally to perform this plague. It says in verse 4, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God would come down to perform this plague. Verse 5 tells us that this plague would affect every Egyptian household. From the highest household, that of Pharaoh's, all the way to the lowest. The lowest of the low, the slave girl who is behind the handmill. Every household would be affected by this plague. The scope of this plague would prove decisively to all that God was the sovereign ruler over not only Egypt, but all of the so-called gods of Egypt over the entire world. So God promises in chapter 11 this devastating final plague, this plague that would once and for all accomplish that which he had been moving Pharaoh toward up to this point. But secondly, God provides a means of deliverance for his people. We see this multifaceted character of God. On the one hand, he has determined to send this plague, this destructive plague upon the Egyptians. But he also comes to his people with this message of hope and deliverance. This narrative in chapter 12, we'll read in a second, includes God's instruction for preparing for this final plague. And, and as we will see, as we will note, it's dripping with parallels to the New Testament teaching on the work of Christ in the atonement and salvation. It's unmistakable. And I think it's worth our, our consideration of what exactly God is is trying to accomplish here because I think his purpose is much broader than simply the event of the Exodus. God is revealing much more than simply the means of deliverance from Egypt. God is 
God wants his people to see that there is something bigger going on in this story. God is at work on many, many different levels. From the present all the way to the future. You see, God's instructions to the people regarding the Passover, regarding preparing for this final plague, reveal at least three necessities for rescue and deliverance. We see these these noted here as the hope of rescue and deliverance from this final plague, but we, we will see that the same necessities are there for hope of rescue and deliverance from sin and from judgment. So God provides a means of deliverance for His people. And the first thing I want us to see is in this deliverance there is the necessity of a substitutionary death. Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the prominent feature given in this initial preparation for the Passover is the use of this lamb. It had to be one year old, it had to be a male, and it had to be perfectly healthy, without blemish. This was the substitute. This was the the one who would die as a substitute for the household. The phrase that bears on the theological significance of this ritual is that phrase at the end of verse 3, a lamb for a household. That is, the lamb represented the household in which it was killed and offered. The point clearly is that that lamb would die in the place of that household. Or more exactly, would die in the place of the firstborn in that household. So the only way that the households of Israel would avoid the tenth plague, the final plague, the judgment of God as He came into Egypt, the only way for them to avoid that was that a death of a lamb occurred in that household. The significance of this lamb goes even further beyond its its use as a substitute here at the first Passover. But it, it extends, it serves as a pointer to the last and true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. We often miss... <clears throat> the reality of this substitutionary death, or, or, or maybe maybe not the reality, but the richness of Jesus' death in our place. We read over and over again, we, we read, or it was read for us earlier today, one place where we read of, of Jesus dying for us. And what might be a simple phrase really is that Jesus died not as an example for us, not simply for our benefit, But Jesus died for us. He died in our place. He died so that we don't have to die. This has so much significance for how we view and experience our relationship to God as a Christian, as His child. This reality of Jesus' substitutionary death is vital to our walk with God. It's, it's one of those things that we, we need to understand. It's not just a theological truth that's for textbooks. This is something that, that needs to develop within our hearts. It's something that we need to believe 
and experience and understand that Jesus died in our place. Now, since Jesus died in our place, there is both a negative and positive aspect to what he has accomplished. First, when Jesus died on the cross in our place, he absorbed the wrath of God due to us. One of the things Jesus did in his death was to take on himself our sin and then bearing that sin bore the wrath of God poured down for that sin. This is what we call the doctrine of propitiation. Jesus absorbed God's wrath that we deserve. This is illustrated by the Passover lamb in Exodus. In the future, later in Exodus and Numbers, and on through the Old Testament, it's illustrated by the offerings made and the blood offered and sprinkled on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place of propitiation. It was the place where God meted out His wrath so that the people didn't have to when that blood was applied there. You see, the necessity of death because of sin is is further evidence of the seriousness of our sin. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. Sin is not something to consider to be a, a minor problem. Sin is something that should be taken seriously. We know that because sin brings death. Our sin is a grievous offense to God and must be punished. There is no escaping this reality. We see this from all the way back at the garden when Adam, Adam and Eve sinned. God killed an animal to provide covering for them. And on and on, sin brings death. But the glorious reality of Jesus is that He is our Passover Lamb. And He has, he has died the death that we deserve. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And this verse captures both that, that negative aspect, of the fact that, that Jesus bore the wrath that we deserved, and also the positive aspect of that. Jesus' substitutionary death, because it has absorbed the wrath, has brought us into relationship with God. We now enjoy a new relationship with God. Our relationship with God is, is no longer the way Jonathan Edwards described it in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Those who are in Christ no longer are in that position of storing up God's wrath against our sin. Our sin has been dealt with in Christ. We now enjoy a relationship that a relationship with God that is characterized by love and joy and satisfaction. Just as God punished his son on the cross for our sin, he now lavishes on us the love that he has for his son. Because of our identity with Christ. Jesus on the cross received from God that which we deserve so that we in Christ might receive from God that which Christ deserves and we do not deserve. Romans 8:33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ? I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Nothing can separate us from God's love because Jesus was our substitute and has brought us into a relationship, a new relationship with God, a relationship as His child. I love the way the the song we sang earlier before the throne puts it because I think it provides real everyday life type of hope and encouragement for us. One of those verses that's always meant a lot to me and we just sang it. Speaks of when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God is satisfied to look at Christ and his substitutionary death, just as the lamb, the Passover lamb, died in the place of the Israelite firstborn. So Jesus died in our place. So that God is satisfied to look at, at him and his sacrifice and pardon us, free us from, from that which we deserve. So God provides a means of deliverance for his people. But that deliverance, in that deliverance, there is the necessity for a substitutionary death. The Passover lamb was that substitute for the Israelites. Our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, is our substitute. Secondly, in this deliverance, there is the necessity of the shedding of blood. So not only is there a death, but there is this, the, the necessity of shedding of blood. Look at verse 7, chapter 12. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So not only does God's deliverance of his people here require that they kill a substitutionary lamb, it requires that There is the shedding of blood, the application of that shed blood. This was the sign that the sacrifice had been made according to the instructions given by God. In other words, this was the means by which this sacrifice was applied to this household. It was literally applied. They took the blood and sprinkled it on the doorposts as evidence that they had obeyed the Lord. They had believed the Lord and obeyed. And had offered the substitutionary lamb. Again, God did not see, need to see the blood on the doorpost. It's not as if God couldn't know otherwise that they had obeyed. But this was further part of his revelation about the nature of redemption. God's redemption of his people requires the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7, a verse we've seen recently in our study through Ephesians. In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So God, through the events of this Passover is revealing further the nature of his redemption of his people. It required the shedding of blood. 
the bloody death of Christ on the cross is the event to which this type points. The fulfillment of this type is is that cross where Jesus hung and shed His blood. That's why Jesus, His conversation with His disciples in the upper room at the last Passover, the last true Passover, as they gathered there together in that upper room, He he addresses His disciples and He notes the fulfillment of that meal. The meal that they were eating. He notes that it signified His upcoming death. His upcoming sacrifice for sin would bring about a change in the way that we relate to God. Mark 14, 22. As they were eating this Passover meal, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And He took the cup and when He had given Thanks, he gave it to them and they drank all of it. And he said, he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This Passover feast, this meal, pointed toward a future sacrifice. Jesus himself explains that to which it pointed. It was, it was his own sacrifice of his body. The bread of the Passover feast represented his body. The drink of that Passover feast represented His blood. It it pointed to His blood. Evidence of the substitutionary death and shedding of the blood that brought deliverance of His people. The Passover meal in Exodus was was not primarily a meal for sustenance. We see that in several ways. You see... They were not to eat of it boiled in water. The, the implication is that boiling water would, would take too long. This was a meal to be eaten quickly, right away. They didn't even prepare it the same way that they would normally prepare a meal, the meat. They were to eat it in haste. Belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, ready to go. This meal was not really for sustenance. Leftovers were not to be kept for the next day. This was a meal that was primarily for deliverance from sin and remembrance. Just as the new Passover meal, the Lord's table that Jesus instituted in that upper room is a meal not for sustenance, but for remembrance. Remembering our Passover lamb and what he has done for us. So not only is there a necessity of a substitutionary death in this Passover meal, the shedding of blood, but thirdly there's the necessity of faith. Let's read together the rest of chapter 12. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all of your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop 
and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch it, the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow, will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So we see here the necessity of faith. In one sense, this section might seem a little bit out of place. God is preparing his people to escape Egypt, to be leaving, noting how quickly they would be leaving. And here he takes the time to institute for them an annual celebration. I heard it this week compared to attempting to escape an emergency situation such as a fire or some other urgent situation and before fully escaping taking the time to say we're going to we're going to celebrate this event every year on this date okay it seems like the the most important thing would not be to plan your commemorations but to get out and yet god takes the time to note the need for remembering the need for commemoration and celebration at the heart of what God is doing here is strengthening the faith of His people. One of the questions we might ask when considering this whole account, it was one of the first questions I had as I began reading through this text is, why does God include the, the people of Israel at all in this plague? Why is it that God didn't do what He had done earlier and sent the plague on Egypt and left His own people alone? so that they did not feel it or experience it? Why is it that God promises to send this plague on Egypt and then requires his own people to perform this sacrifice as a way to escape the plague? Remember, God is working in this plague and really in all the plagues and all of Scripture at, at at a broader level. God is communicating much more than what's going on right then. God is communicating something broader about himself and the nature of his deliverance of people. And so he wanted his people to understand the means by which they, they escape his punishment, the means by which they are delivered. It wasn't good enough that they were his people. There had to be this offering made, the death, the shedding of blood, the faith demonstrated. All of those were necessary in order for them to be saved. They had to trust God's provision for them, which was evidenced by the killing of the lamb and the, and the shedding of the blood and applying that to their doors. In the same way, our spiritual salvation, our salvation from sin, is obtained solely through faith in God's provision of the substitutionary death and the shed blood. There is no other way to find salvation from sin, but it's through faith in the work of Christ as our Redeemer, which is evidenced by repentance, ongoing repentance and faith and obedience and trust. The section concludes with the the statement that the people of Israel obeyed. They did what God had commanded. They did what Moses and Aaron had told them to do. They obeyed. They demonstrated faith by obeying. I think it's worth noting also, we don't find it explicitly in the text, but I think it's probably accurate to say that for, for some, 
Maybe for many, this leaving Egypt would, would have been a difficult thing. This was, this was their home. You know, it occurred to me that they were in slavery to Egypt, the people of Israel, for 430 years. And that's not quite twice as long as the United States of America has been a country. It's a long time. We think of our national history as a pretty long time. This was almost twice as long as that. These were people that had, to some degree, been adopted into the, the culture of Egypt. This, this was where they had raised generations and generations of their family. And I'm sure for many of them, yes, they wanted to leave slavery. They wanted to be out of the, the bondage of Egypt. The, maybe they wouldn't have mind just staying where they were and, and, and staying where they had grown up and, and, and raised their families. My point is, obeying God in faith is not necessarily always an easy thing. It's not always, we're not, we're not maybe not always ready and willing at the drop of a hat to obey the Lord. And I think sometimes that's okay. It, it's, not, it's not a sin necessarily to initially struggle with believing God. But God's purpose is to not leave us in that state, but to bring us to pursue Him so that we might believe Him. We might obey Him. And trust Him. As difficult as it sometimes might be. Faith is a struggle. They had to be prepared, as we noted earlier, to leave immediately. They couldn't leaven their bread. There was no time for the bread to rise. They basically had to have their suitcases packed and be ready to leave when the call came. Also, the annual commemoration of this event would serve to teach future generations about the faithfulness of God. God had been faithful to His people. And when they celebrated this annual feast, this Passover feast, generations upon generations of Israelites could remember that God had been faithful to His covenant with them. God had been faithful to fulfill His promises to them. I think this is useful for us Perhaps we'll see it more even in the next section where God continues to, to give instructions about this annual commemoration. But it really is our responsibility as, as people of God to, to be reminding one another, whether it's an annual celebration, a monthly celebration, a weekly celebration, however often it is, to remember and rehearse before each other what God has done, how God has demonstrated His faithfulness to us. This serves to cultivate faith in God. Because our faith, our, our salvation is, is not dependent on the strength of our faith. Our faith sometimes wavers. We doubt. Our salvation depends on the object of our faith. Jesus, our Passover Lamb. And these reminders... Help us when we experience the doubts, the struggles of whether, whether God has been faithful, whether we, whether we truly are a child of God. It's not dependent on something we've done. It's depending, dependent on Him. And so we remind one another. We go to God's Word. We remind ourselves of what He has done so that our faith might be, might be grown. How often do we minimize what God has done in our life? How often do we attribute things that, that happen in our lives to, to something that we have done? And it, it's not always a, a bad thing, like we're boasting in ourselves. It could just be we, we think so little of what God does, or we, we think that the, the events of our lives are so insignificant that, that even we can handle them, and God really hasn't done anything amazing. What's wrong? God, God is at work every moment of our lives as His children, working for our good. And so we trust God. So this 
section of the narrative shows us that God promises this devastating final plague. He provides a means of deliverance for his people. And then God performs the final plague. Chapter 12, verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone, and bless me also. And so just like that, God sends this plague. He comes and does just as he had promised. He kills the firstborn in every household in Egypt. And can you imagine what that must have been like that night? As families awake to realize what had happened. I mean, imagine that this happened just in your neighborhood, how tragic that would be. Your city. I mean, this is a whole nation that is experiencing tragedy and death. And yet I think for them it is unmistakable that God is sovereign. He did what he said he was going to do. He determined to release his people from Egyptian bondage. And he is proving his ruler rulership and authority over the king of Egypt and over all peoples. You see there is no delay and there is no hope of of avoiding God's judgment apart from the provisions that he has made. When God's judgment comes, it comes decisively. It comes without recourse outside of himself. He is our only hope of escape. I think there is a a warning for any here today that are not trusting Christ. Who find yourself like Pharaoh, refusing to submit to his authority and his rule. You see, you sit right now in that condition that Edwards spoke of earlier. The wrath of God is is building up and building up against your sin. The only thing preventing you from experiencing the wrath of God right now is the pleasure and patience of God, who has given you the opportunity today to hear His call to turn And repent and trust Christ, the Passover lamb, as your means of escape from the wrath. My call to you is to heed the warning that God provides here. Don't be like Pharaoh and harden your heart against the Lord of heaven. Submit to him. Turn to him in faith for your salvation. And experience the grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has obtained for us. Father, thank You for Your provision of a substitute. Thank You for the hope of deliverance that we have. You called your people in the book of Exodus to offer this sacrifice and to apply the blood and obey in faith. And we praise you because you have fulfilled that yourself and and provided for us a sacrifice. You sent your firstborn son to be our substitute. He shed His blood to cover our sins. 
And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and produce faith. For any here today that are without Christ, I pray that your spirit would open their eyes, soften their hearts to receive the truth of the gospel. That Jesus came and while we were still sinners, died for us in our place to forgive our sins. Pray that there might be some that are struggling with knowing whether they are truly yours. That you would remind them of the provision that you have made. Pray that as we gather and meet here weekly as a as a reminder of your death and resurrection and we participate in regular reminders in the Lord's table of of your sacrifice as our Passover lamb that you would use all of these events and remembrances as a means to cultivate and grow our faith so that we might, like your people Israel in Exodus, obey when we hear your voice. And even when it might be difficult, you would provide the, the grace and ability for us to believe you and to believe what you say. We pray that you administer your word to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.